Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome home. This is Tracy, and we want to thank you for being a part of the Life Together podcast. Before we get into this week's teaching, we want you to know that you matter to God and you matter to us. Life Together is a Wednesday evening gathering for worship, Bible study, and community here at Oak Creek Assembly of God in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 through 7, Isaiah writes this, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warriors and the uniforms of blood stained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, His government will not end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of His ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. So 700 years before Jesus was born, there's a man by the name of Isaiah who writes all of these things. Isaiah was a priest, but there were many priests, but there was something very unique about Isaiah's relationship with God. God used Isaiah to be his spokesperson. Even though Israel wasn't listening to God, Isaiah was always listening. And so when Israel would not listen, God would use Isaiah to speak God's words to the people of Israel. In the book of Isaiah, it is filled with prophecy after prophecy of Isaiah revealing to us details about the life of Jesus Christ 700 years before Jesus is born. This is one of the amazing things about Scripture. It is one of the things that builds my faith in the infallibility of Scripture, that lets me know that something miraculous is happening here when a man 700 years before Christ starts telling me all of these details about Christ's life. Just to give you some quick flyover highlights. So in Isaiah 7, Isaiah tells us that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. In Isaiah 9, he tells us that the Messiah will begin his ministry in Galilee. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah tells us the Messiah will, be, will teach in parables. In Isaiah 35, he tells us the Messiah will perform miracles. In Isaiah 50, he says the Messiah will be mocked and abused. In Isaiah 53, the Messiah will be despised and rejected. In Isaiah 25, Isaiah lets us know that the Messiah will conquer death. Isaiah has all of these prophecies of these significant and specific details about this Savior that will one day come, who has not yet come, but God has given Isaiah this little window into the future to see what will be. And in all of these details and all of the things that Isaiah prophesies to us about the Messiah, there's kind of one major thing that he misses, and that is his name. God says, I'm going to tell you all of these things about this Savior of Israel, but I'm not yet going to tell you his 
name. The name Jesus is nowhere in the Old Testament. The word Christ is nowhere in the Old Testament. And although Isaiah does not know his name, the closest he gets to it is in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, when he says, God didn't tell me his name yet, but he did tell me what he will be called. He let me know some of his titles, some of the roles that he will fill. And although I don't know his name yet, I do know what we're going to call him. And so I want to share that with you. We're going to call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you're someone who's been with us in life together for more than a year, you might remember that last December we preached a series called Prince of Peace, where we took the month of December just to focus in on this title of Christ, this role, this banner over him, that he would be the Prince of Peace. Well, this year we're going to do something different and the same at the same time, and we're going to take a different title, and we're going to spend the next five weeks looking at this title of Wonderful Counselor. What does that mean? How is it that God has designed a way for Jesus to be a Wonderful Counselor? When I think about counseling, I think about, to me, a a big curve in my life of maybe the way that I perceive counseling and what counseling can be like. Uh, When I was a kid, I grew up in a very conservative church that probably would have had a a pretty negative uh, view of counseling. But I've I've changed. My perspective has changed. I am now married to a counselor. I think (laughs) Mandy, we were married for like one year, and then Mandy decided to go back to school and become a counselor. I think I find the timing questionable as to how all of that happens. But regardless, Mandy's a school counselor now, and so a lot of that has kind of brought those interests into her life and subsequently into my life about what it is to have good counsel, about what it is to be a good counselor. I think of the counselors in your life, and they probably divide into two categories. I think in our our society, we have paid counselors that are professionals, people who've gone to school to train for this. That could be a counselor, a Christian counselor, a school counselor. It could be other fields that kind of drift in that area, like a psychologist or psychiatrist or a life coach or a personal trainer of people who are bringing that counsel with this trained Uh, mindset, someone that we would pay to do this. And then outside of professional counseling, then there's this whole other field of unpaid or unprofessional (laughs) counseling. And these are people like your parents and your friends and people that you rely on, people that when you don't know whether or not to take the job or not, they're the people that you go talk to. Ladies, if you ever had the privilege to buy a wedding dress, the people you invited to go with you to pick out your wedding dress, those are some of the counselors in your life, of people that you trust, people that you lean on. I believe that God has designed us in our lives to not make decisions alone. I think if you start making the majority of decisions in your life in a box, in somewhere that is just by yourself with your own thoughts, Well, our thoughts are deceiving, filled with sinful desires and temptations, and there are things that will pull us into making poor choices when we make our choices by ourselves. God has said, I want you to fill your life with godly counsel. Find people that you trust, and whether or not that is an unpaid person or a paid person that God can lead into your life to help you make wise choices, counseling is a very, very good thing. And if I put these two groups side by side of 
unprofessional or professional, paid, unpaid counselors, there is a third party, and this is a party all to himself, and it is Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, there's lots of godly counsel in this world, but I need to remind you there is only one wonderful counselor, and it's me that Jesus has designed this plan for his relationship with you, that he says, when you go through your life, if you want to make wise choices, if you want to live a godly life and make godly decisions, then I want to be your wonderful counselor. Come talk to me. In this series of Wonderful Counselor, we're going to take five weeks, and we're going to focus on five cornerstones of emotional health, of things that are topics that you might experience if you went to a counselor, but we believe that Jesus has something fantastic to say about each one of these categories. If I'm going to name them off here, tonight we're going to talk about empathy, we're going to talk about forgiveness and grief and vulnerability and hope, and we're going to talk about these areas of emotional health in the next five weeks and allow God to stir something up inside of you, allow Jesus to take that role in your life to be a wonderful counselor. And we're starting tonight with the topic of empathy. So I'm sure many people, when we start talking to use the word empathy, you might also be thinking of its partner word, sympathy. These words sound so similar, and their meanings can easily be intertwined and mixed up. If you're confused by the difference, you're not alone. I've had to work hard this week to get them separated in my head myself. You know, one of the reasons that we can often confuse these words is the word sympathy is actually much older than the word empathy. It's been around longer because there didn't used to be two categories of this is sympathy and this is empathy. It used to just be the word sympathy. If you go to the card aisle in Walgreens, you're going to find a bunch of cards and they're labeled sympathy. There is no second category for empathy. It's just the one category. But as our language has developed, as the counseling practice has developed, people have seen the need to separate these two ideas a bit because they see them affecting people in different ways, that there is two things here. There is sympathy and there is empathy. So what is the difference? The definitions I want to use tonight is this. So sympathy is having a reaction to what someone feels, and empathy is feeling what someone feels. So empathy is standing in someone else's shoes, and sympathy is, wow, those shoes look really uncomfortable. That must be really painful. Hey, you know what? I had a pair of uncomfortable shoes one time, and it was rough. I did not like that. And you know, I, I'm noticing that your shoes are two sizes too small, which I know hurts, but my shoes were three sizes too small. And that was, I, I mean, I, now that I'm thinking about it, I was rather heroic in the way that I handled my suffering. And I'm sure that you are, by hearing this story, being really encouraged and inspired to not feel in pain because of how good I was at handling my pain. And man, I just, I, I feel better now that I've shared this with you in your pain. Sympathy is a comment. Empathy is a connection. So, was the incarnation of Christ an act of sympathy or was the incarnation of Christ an act of empathy? If you're not familiar, incarnation is a term that we use to describe the process of God becoming man. It is the sizing down of the infinite into the finite. How could this all-powerful God pack himself down 
into the body of an infant? How could a timeless deity shrink himself into the confines of a 24-hour day? This is God with skin. It's the incarnation of Christ. This is a God who gets tired, who gets hungry, and who bleeds. Paul the Apostle describes the incarnation of Christ in the book of Philippians chapter 2. He says this in verses 6 through 8. Though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born to a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That first sentence always grabs me every time. He did not think of equality with God as something to be clinged onto. He didn't cling onto his perspective. He left his perspective behind to go stand in your perspective, to stand in your shoes This is what it is to be empathetic. This is what it is to show compassionate love, is to leave his throne in heaven and to come be born into a dirty, filthy manger and to get sick like you get sick and to be sorrowful like you feel sorrow, to be broken the way that you feel broken and to bleed the way that you bleed. So if that's the empathetic God, what would a sympathetic God look like? Well, a sympathetic God sounds like this. Wow, it, uh, it, it looks really bad down there. You know, all that sin, death, and dying stuff looks really uncomfortable, and I feel uncomfortable, you know, watching it happen. So I'm going to send one of my angels out to Walgreens, and they're going to get a card. It's going to be one of the real nice ones with, like, glitter or the picture of a sad animal on it. Who knows, maybe they'll make a casserole and they're going to come drop it off so that we can feel better that with your suffering down there away from me. Acts of kindness are really good. If you feel the desire to give someone a sympathy card or a broccoli casserole, please do that. If it's me, I will definitely take the casserole. But I want to invite you when the next time you feel God move you to give an act of kindness Ask yourself this question. Is my act of kindness an act to relieve my feelings, how I feel from what's happened to you? Or is this an opportunity for me to make a connection, a real connection with how you feel? That is the split between sympathy and empathy. So if a sympathetic God feels like that, Well, then what does our empathetic God feel like? What does he sound like? Well, an empathetic God sounds like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. This is how God loves you. This is how Jesus loves you, with an empathetic heart, with a compassionate love, not from a distance, but from your perspective, in your shoes, in your pain, in your doubt, in your loss, in the kaleidoscope of motions that you and I will feel from now until the day that we die. God says, I want to meet you there. I am 
God incarnate. I am Emmanuel, and I am with you. I am so thankful for the empathetic God that we serve. I am so thankful that he did not mail in his sympathy from heaven, but that he was willing and able to come, to arrive, to be here with us, to sweat with us, and to feel with us. That is the love that I feel for him. That is the love that he has shown for me. The writer of Hebrews describes it this way. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Don't be afraid to come to Jesus. Don't be tentative to bring to him your shame and your disappointments and your shortcomings because Jesus understands our weaknesses. When you feel alone, come to Jesus and find mercy. When you feel shame, come to Jesus and find mercy. When you feel angry and enraged, come to Jesus and find mercy because he understands our weaknesses. He has been where you are. He feels what you feel because his compassion has sent him to that end. I think we always mess this up when we imagine God sitting up on this giant throne, throwing lightning bolts down to the earth, constantly rolling at his eyes at our failures, constantly yelling, stop it. And we see him this way as this vengeful God saying, why don't you pull it together? You're making me look bad. Well, friends, your sin and your shame and every mistake you've ever made could not take him down one inch from where he is at. You were never holding him up. He is not threatened by you. He is compassionate towards you. And when he sent his son, he didn't send his son to condemn you. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is why Jesus explains his mission like he does in John 3, 17. I didn't come to judge the world or to push it down any further. I came to lift it up. I came to save the world. And the best way for me to save the world is by demonstrating my empathetic love. So we read earlier in Philippians, Paul explains that Jesus did not cling to his power, but he released it in an act of empathy. Let's go back and read the three verses earlier of that same chapter. We're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul instructs the church. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, be empathetic. Get out of your shoes and go stand in someone else's shoes now, verse 5 is kind of the linchpin of this chapter. I love verse 5 because what he's done in verse 3 and 4 is he said, church, be empathetic. And then what happens after this is what we read earlier where he's explaining the incarnation of Christ. Let's look and see what happens in verse 5 right in the middle. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says this, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. This is mind-blowing to me because he says, you need to be empathetic 
don't just think about yourself. Start thinking about other people. Start valuing other people at a higher level than you value yourselves. In the middle, he says, you need to have the same attitude as Christ. And then he explains the incarnation of Christ. He says, look what Jesus did. When Jesus loved you so much and he wanted a pathway to you, he gave up his power. He gave up his perspective to come and sit in your place, to come stand in your shoes. And because God loved you like that, we need to have the same attitude as Christ. And when you go into your world, I want you to love with an empathetic love. I want you to get out of your perspective, and I want you to go sit in someone else's perspective, and I want you to have the same attitude as Christ. I want you to love the people around you the way that Christ loved you. If there is one thing that our world right now is starving for, I think it's empathy. We need to move out and start seeing things from someone else's perspective. You say, no, no, Dan, you know, we need, to, we need to stand our ground. We need to take a battle position. We need to fight. If we show empathy, we're going to look weak. If we show empathy, it's going to sound like we're just wishy-washy and we don't know what we believe. If we start just, you know, taking other people's perspective or listening, like that, we're just going to ruin the whole thing. The house of cards is going to fall down. No, no, it's not. If God himself made a great plan to love you and his plan to love you was to give up those things and take your perspective, then I have full faith that empathy is a great plan, that I have great faith that empathy is the way. It is the way of love. It is the way of compassion. And as Christ has called me to be his light in this world, there is no better path you're going to find than the path of empathy the path to love the way that Jesus loved. There was a, a nurse named Teresa Warren, and she did a bunch of research about empathy. It's interesting if you think about empathy in the eyes of a healthcare worker. It's really, really important, right? If you walk in and you are nine months pregnant and the nurse you meet says, wow, that looks like it hurts, you're not gonna have a great day. <laughs> And that empathy as a healthcare worker is really important to find people who can see from someone else's perspective, who can care from them, not from their story, but to care for them from their story. And so she did all of this research, and what she landed on were four skills of empathy. And I just want to share these with you. I think as God has called each one of us to grow in our ability to empathize with those who are around us, to love them the way that Jesus loved us, I think these four skills will be a helpful way to us evaluate ourselves and to look for markers of growth in our lives life as we desire to love the world the way that Christ loved us. So the four skills of empathy, the first one that she lists here is perspective taking. This is the ability to take the perspective of another person. So when someone says, my mom just died, I don't respond by saying, well, my grandma died a couple years ago, and that was really sad for me. That's me forcing their story into my perspective rather than me making the journey to come over to take their perspective. Second one she lists here is staying out of judgment. This is really difficult because judgment is just plain fun. And so these are sentences that start off with a phrase, at least. So like, oh, you know, John's failing out of high school. Well, at least Lisa's doing well. 
or, you know, I'm getting a divorce. Well, at least it lasted this long. It also starts off with phrases like, if you hadn't, right? So, well, if you hadn't have had premarital sex, you wouldn't be in this situation. If you hadn't have shown up to late to work so many times, you wouldn't have lost your job. If you hadn't have been so rude, your marriage wouldn't be on the rocks. If you hadn't is a terrible way to start an empathetic conversation. When judgment shows up, it is the death of empathy every single time. If Jesus himself said, I didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through me, don't sit in the seat of judgment. It is the death of empathy. We need to show up with compassion and be with someone. Number three, the recognizing emotion in other people. You might think this is obvious, but sometimes uh, human emotions are very, very complicated. Sometimes we cry when we're happy, and sometimes we smile when we're furious. Being able to recognize emotions and see not what I'm feeling, but what you're feeling. And then number four is communicating others' emotions. So I'm going to take what I have learned, the emotion that I am seeing, that I am witnessing from you, and I'm going to communicate that to you. In counseling terms, they call this reflecting. So I'm going to say, it seems that you are heartbroken that your son has walked away from the Lord. Yes, I am. It seems that you're terrified that your job situation is going to fall out and you're not going to know what to do next. Yes, I am terrified. In counseling, you continue this reflecting tool until someone says yes. So if I say, it seems that you're really stressed out about work. No, no, I'm not really stressed out about work. It seems that you're really stressed out about what's happening at home. Yeah, I'm really stressed out about what's happening at home. That yeah, that yes when I can see someone else's emotion, I can communicate that emotion, I can reflect it to them, and then they say, yes, that yes is like the bell ringing on empathy. It is someone saying, you did it. You crossed over, you are in my emotion, you have stepped into my shoes, you have volunteered yourself to feel what I'm feeling, and right now that is exactly what I need. I needed someone to walk in this room and to sit with me, to be with me, to feel with me, and the emotion I'm feeling now is love. I am feeling your love. I believe that God wants all of us to reach out and love the world around us with the love that he has shown to us and to be an empathetic people. Let's pray together tonight. Lord, I thank you. I want to stand back tonight and just for a moment be in awe of the way that you loved me, of the way that you loved each one of us, that you would bring yourself and make yourself so small that you would fit into our world and that you would bleed with us and that you would be hungry with us and thirst with us and suffer with us, that you might feel with us. I praise you. I thank you. You are so great and so compassionate and so loving. I pray, Lord, that you would build this room tonight with those who can share your compassion, with people who have the desire to grow in their ability to empathize with those around us, to love others the way that you loved us. We give you praise tonight. We thank you. We aspire to be your representatives in this world. We love you and we give you praise. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org. Thank you.